BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Chapter 23 of The Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. CHAPTER Twenty Three, THE STORY OF A CHARMING WOMAN Fee-fi-fo-fum, I smell the blood of an Englishman. Old Song I hold you as a thing, enskied and sainted, measure for measure. You have never heard, then, the particulars of Mr. Leavenworth's marriage? It was my partner who spoke. I had been asking him to explain to me Mr. Leavenworth's well-known antipathy to the English race. No. If you had, you would not need to come to me for this explanation. But it is not strange you are ignorant of the matter. I doubt if there are half a dozen persons in existence who could tell you where Horatio Leavenworth found the lovely woman, who afterwards became his wife much less give you any details of the circumstances which led to his marriage. I am very fortunate, then, in being in the confidence of one who can. What were those circumstances, Mr. Veeley? It will aid you but little to hear. Horatio Leavenworth, when a young man, was very ambitious, so much so that at one time he aspired to marry a wealthy lady of Providence. But— chancing to go to england he there met a young woman whose grace and charm had such an effect upon him that he relinquished all thoughts of the providence lady though it was some time before he could face the prospect of marrying the one who had so greatly interested him as she was not only in humble circumstances but was encumbered with a child concerning whose parentage the neighbours professed ignorance, and she had nothing to say. But as it is very apt to be the case in an affair like this, love and admiration soon got the better of worldly wisdom. Taking his future in his hands, he offered himself as her husband, when she immediately proved herself worthy of his regard, by entering at once into those explanations he was too much of a gentleman to demand. The story she told was pitiful. She proved to be an American by birth, her father having been a well-known merchant of Chicago. While he lived, her home was one of luxury, but just as she was emerging into womanhood, he died. 
it was at his funeral she met the man destined to be her ruin how he came there she never knew he was not a friend of her father's it was enough he was there and saw her and that in three weeks don't shudder she was such a child they were married in twenty-four hours she knew what that word meant for her it meant blows everett i am telling no fanciful story in twenty-four hours after that girl was married her husband coming drunk into the house found her in his way and knocked her down but it was the beginning her father's estate on being settled up proving to be less than expected he carried her off to england where he did not wait to be drunk in order to maltreat her she was not free from his cruelty night or day before she was sixteen she had run the whole gamut of human suffering and that not at the hands of a coarse common ruffian but from an elegant handsome luxury-loving gentleman whose taste in dress was so nice he would sooner fling a garment of hers into the fire than see her go into company clad in a manner he did not consider becoming she bore it till her child was born then she fled two days after the little one saw the light she rose from her bed and taking her baby in her arms ran out of the house the few jewels she had put into her pocket supported her till she could set up a little shop as for her husband she neither saw him nor heard from him from the day she left him till about two weeks before horatio leavenworth first met her when she learned from the papers that he was dead she was therefore free but though she loved horatio leavenworth with all her heart she would not marry him she felt herself forever stained and soiled by the one awful year of abuse and contamination nor could he persuade her not till the death of her child a month or so after his proposal did she consent to give him her hand and what remained of her unhappy life he brought her to new york surrounded her with the luxury and every tender care but the arrow had gone too deep two years from the day her child breathed its last she too died it was the blow of his life to horatio leavenworth he was never the same man again though mary and eleanor shortly after entered his home he never recovered his old light-heartedness money became his idol and the ambition to make and leave a great fortune behind him modified all his views of life but one proof remained that he never forgot the wife of his youth and that was he could not bear to have the word englishman uttered in his hearing mr veeley paused and i rose to go do you remember how mrs leavenworth looked i asked could you describe her to me he seemed a little astonished at my request but immediately replied she was a very pale woman not strictly beautiful but of a contour and expression of great charm her hair was brown her eyes grey and very wide apart he nodded looking still more astonished 
"'How came you to know? Have you seen her picture?' I did not answer that question. On my way downstairs I bethought me of a letter which I had in my pocket for Mr. Veeley's son Fred, and knowing of no surer way of getting it to him that night than by leaving it on the library table, I stepped to the door of that room, which in this house was at the rear of the parlours, and receiving no reply to my knock, opened it and looked in. The room was unlighted, but a cheerful fire was burning in the grate, and by its glow I espied a lady crouching on the hearth, whom at first glance I took for Mrs. Veeley, but upon advancing and addressing her by that name I saw my mistake, for the person before me not only refrained from replying, but, rising at the sound of my voice, revealed a form of such noble proportions that all possibility of its being that of the dainty little wife of my partner fled. "'I see I have made a mistake,' said I. "'I beg your pardon.' and would have left the room, but something in the general attitude of the lady before me restrained me, and, believing it to be Mary Leavenworth, I inquired, "'Can it be this is Miss Leavenworth?' The noble figure appeared to droop, the gently lifted head to fall, and for a moment I doubted if I had been correct in my supposition. Then form and head slowly erected themselves, a soft voice spoke, and I heard a low, yes and hurriedly advancing confronted not mary with her glancing feverish gaze and scarlet trembling lips but eleanor the woman whose faintest look had moved me from the first the woman whose husband i believed myself to be even then pursuing to his doom the surprise was too great i could neither sustain nor conceal it stumbling slowly back i murmured something about having believed it to be her cousin and then, conscious only of the one wish to fly at presence I dared not encounter in my present mood, turned when her rich, heartful voice rose once more, and I heard, "'You will not leave me without a word, Mr. Raymond, now that chance has thrown us together?' Then, as I came slowly forward, "'Were you so very much astonished to find me here?' "'I do not know. I did not expect.' was my incoherent reply. I had heard you were ill, that you went nowhere, that you had no wish to see your friends. I have been ill, she said, but I am better now, and I have come to spend the night with Mrs. Veeley, because I could not endure the stare of the four walls of my room any longer. This was said without any effort at plaintiveness, but rather as if she thought it necessary to excuse herself for being where she was. "'I am glad you did so,' said I. "'You ought to be here all the while. "'That dreary, lonesome boarding-house is no place for you, Miss Leavenworth. "'It distresses us all to feel that you are exiling yourself all this time.' "'I do not wish anybody to be distressed,' she returned. "'It is best for me to be where I am. "'Nor am I altogether alone. "'There is a child there whose innocent eyes see nothing but innocence in mine.' She will keep me from despair. Do not let my friends be anxious. I can bear it. Then, in a lower tone, There is but one thing which really unnerves me, and that is my ignorance of what is going on at home. Sorrow I can bear, but suspense is killing me. Will you not tell me something of Mary and home? I cannot ask Mrs. Veeley. She is kind, but has no real knowledge of Mary or me. 
nor does she know anything of our estrangement. She thinks me obstinate and blames me for leaving my cousin in her trouble. But you know I could not help it. You know— Her voice wavered off into a tremble, and she did not conclude. I cannot tell you much, I hastened to reply. But whatever knowledge is at my command is certainly yours. Is there anything in particular you wish to know? Yes, how Mary is, and whether she is well and composed. Your cousin's health is good, I returned, but I fear I cannot say she is composed. She is greatly troubled about you. You see her often, then? I am assisting Mr. Harwell in preparing your uncle's book for the press, and necessarily am there much of the time. My uncle's book! The words came in a tone of low horror. Yes, Miss Leavenworth, it has been thought best to bring it before the world, and— And Mary has set you at the task? Yes. It seemed as if she could not escape from the horror which this caused. How could she? Oh, how could she? She considers herself as fulfilling her uncle's wishes. He was very anxious, as you know, to have the book out by July. Do not speak of it, she broke in. I cannot bear it. Then, as if she feared she had hurt my feelings by her abruptness, lowered her voice and said, I do not, however, know of any one I should be better pleased to have charged with the task than yourself. With you it will be a work of respect and reverence. But a stranger, oh, I could not have endured a stranger touching it. She was fast falling into her old horror, but rousing herself murmured, "'I wanted to ask you something—ah, I know,' and she moved so as to face me. "'I wish to inquire if everything is as before in the house, the servants, the same, and other things?' "'There is a Mrs. Darrell there. I do not know of any other change.' "'Mary does not talk of going away?' "'I think not.' "'But she has visitors? Some one besides Mrs. Darrell to help her bear her loneliness?' I knew what was coming, and strove to preserve my composure. "'Yes,' I replied, "'a few.' "'Would you mind naming them?' How low her tones were, but how distinct! "'Certainly not. Uh, Mrs. Veeley, Mrs. Gilbert, Miss Martin, and, uh, uh, "'Go on,' she whispered. "'A gentleman by the name of Clavering.' "'You speak that name with evident embarrassment,' she said, after a moment of intense anxiety on my part. "'May I inquire why?' Astounded, I raised my eyes to her face. It was very pale, and wore the old look of self-repressed calm I remembered so well. I immediately dropped my gaze. Why? Because there are some circumstances surrounding him which have struck me as peculiar. How so? she asked. He appears under two names. Today it is Clavering, a short time ago it was— Go on. Robins. Her dress rustled on the hearth. There was a sound of desolation in it. But her voice when she spoke was expressionless as that of an automaton. How many times has this person, of whose name you do not appear to be certain, been to see Mary?' 
once when was it last night did he stay long about twenty minutes i should say and do you think he will come again no why he has left the country a short silence followed this i felt her eyes searching my face but doubt whether if i had known she held a loaded pistol i could have looked up at that moment mr raymond she at length observed in a changed tone the last time i saw you you told me you were going to make some endeavour to restore me to my former position before the world i did not wish you to do so then nor do i wish you to do so now can you not make me comparatively happy then by assuring me you have abandoned or will abandon a project so hopeless it is impossible i replied with emphasis i cannot abandon it much as i grieve to be a source of sorrow to you it is best you should know that i can never give up the hope of writing you while i live she put out her hand in a sort of hopeless appeal inexpressibly touching to behold in the fast waning firelight but i was relentless i should never be able to face the world or my own conscience if through any weakness of my own i should miss the blessed privilege of setting the wrong right and saving a noble woman from unmerited disgrace and then seeing she was not likely to reply to this drew a step nearer and said is there not some little kindness i can show you miss leavenworth is there no message that you would like taken or act it would give you pleasure to see performed she stopped to think no said she i have only one request to make and that you refuse to grant for the most unselfish of reasons i urged she slowly shook her head you think so then before i could reply i could desire one little favour shown me however what is that that if anything should transpire if hannah should be found or or my presence required in any way you would not keep me in ignorance that you will let me know the worst when it comes without fail i will and now good-night mrs veeley is coming back and you would scarcely wish to be found here by her no said i and yet i did not go but stood watching the firelight flicker on her black dress till the thought of clavering and the duty i had for the morrow struck coldly to my heart and i turned away towards the door but at the threshold i paused again and looked back oh the flickering dying fire flame oh the crowding clustering shadows oh that drooping figure in their midst with its clasped hands and its hidden face i see it all again i see it as in a dream then darkness falls and in the glare of gas-lighted streets i am hastening along solitary and sad to my lonely home End of chapter 23 Chapter 24 of The Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 24 A Report Followed by Smoke Oft expectation fails, and most oft there where most it promises, and oft it hits where hope is coldest, 
and despair most sits. All's well that ends well. When I told Mr. Grice I only waited for the determination of one fact, to feel justified in throwing the case unreservedly into his hands, I alluded to the proving or disproving of the supposition that Henry Clavering had been a guest at the same watering-place with Eleanor Leavenworth the summer before. When, therefore, I found myself the next morning with the visitor-book of the Hotel Union at R in my hands, it was only by the strongest effort of will I could restrain my impatience. The suspense, however, was short. Almost immediately I encountered his name, written not half a page below those of Mr. Leavenworth and his nieces, and whatever may have been my emotion at finding my suspicions thus confirmed, I recognised the fact that I was in the possession of a clue which would yet lead to the solving of the fearful problem which had been imposed upon me. Hastening to the telegraph office, I sent a message for the man promised me by Mr. Grice, and, receiving for an answer that he could not be with me before three o'clock, started for the house of Mr. Monell, a client of ours living in R. I found him at home, and, during our interview of two hours, suffered the ordeal of appearing at ease and interested in what he had to say, while my heart was heavy with its first disappointment, and my brain on fire with the excitement of the work then on my hands. I arrived at the depot just as the train came in. There was but one passenger for R, a brisk young man, whose whole appearance differed so from the description which had been given me of Q, that I at once made up my mind he could not be the man I was looking for, and was turning away disappointed when he approached and handed me a card on which was inscribed the single character question mark. Even then I could not bring myself to believe that the slyest and most successful agent in Mr. Grice's employ was before me, till, catching his eye, I saw such a keen, enjoyable twinkle sparkling in its depths that all doubt fled, and, returning his bow with a show of satisfaction, I remarked, "'You are very punctual. I like that.' He gave another short, quick nod. "'Glad, sir, to please you.' Punctuality is too cheap a virtue not to be practised by a man on the lookout for a rise. But what orders, sir? Down train due in ten minutes, no time to spare. Down train? What have we to do with that? I thought you might wish to take it, sir. Mr. Brown, winking expressively at the name, always checks his carpet-bag for home when he sees me coming. But that is your affair. I am not particular. I wish to do what is wisest under the circumstances. "'Go home, then, as speedily as possible.' And he gave a third sharp nod, exceedingly businesslike and determined. "'If I leave you, it is with the understanding that you bring your information first to me, that you are in my employ, and in that of no one else for the time being, and that mum is the word, till I give you liberty to speak.' "'Yes, sir. When I work for Brown and Co., I do not work for Smith and Jones. That you can count on.' "'Very well, then. Here are your instructions.' He looked at the paper I handed him, with a certain degree of care, then stepped into the waiting-room and threw it into the stove, saying in a low tone, "'So much in case I should meet with some accident. Have an epileptic fit, or anything of that sort.' "'But—oh, don't worry, I shan't forget. I've a memory, sir. No need of anybody using pen and paper with me.' 
and laughing in the short, quick way one would expect from a person of his appearance and conversation, he added, "'You'll probably hear from me in a day or so,' and bowing, took his brisk, free way down the street just as the train came rushing in from the west. My instructions to Q were as follows. 1. To find out on what day, and in whose company, the Mrs. Leavenworth arrived at R the year before what their movements had been while there, and in whose society they were oftenest to be seen, also the date of their departure, and such facts as could be gathered in regard to their habits, etc. 2. Ditto in respect to a Mr. Henry Clavering, fellow-guest and probable friend of said ladies. 3. Name of individual fulfilling the following requirements. Clergyman, Methodist, deceased since last December or thereabouts, who in July of 75 was located in some town not over twenty miles from R. 4. Also name and present whereabouts of a man at that time in service of the above. To say that the interval of time necessary to a proper inquiry into these matters was passed by me in any reasonable frame of mind would be to give myself credit for an equanimity of temper which I unfortunately do not possess. Never have days seemed so long as the two which interposed between my return from R and the receipt of the following letter. Sir, individuals mentioned arrived in R July 3rd, 1875. Party consisted of four, the two ladies, their uncle, and the girl named Hannah. Uncle remained three days, and then left for a short tour through Massachusetts, gone for two weeks, during which ladies were seen more or less with the gentleman named between us, but not to an extent sufficient to excite gossip or occasion remark, when said gentleman left R abruptly, two days after uncle's return. Date July 19. As to habits of ladies, more or less social, they were always to be seen at picnics, rides, etc., and in the ballroom. M liked best, E considered grave, and, towards the last of her stay, moody. It is remembered now that her manner was always peculiar, and that she was more or less shunned by her cousin. However, in the opinion of one girl still to be found at the hotel, she was the sweetest lady that ever breathed. No particular reason for this opinion. Uncle, ladies, and servants left R for New York August 7, 1875. 2. H. C. arrived at the hotel in R, July 6, 1875, in company with Mr. and Mrs. Vandervoort, friends of the above. Left July 19, two weeks from day of arrival. Little to be learned in regard to him. Remembered as the handsome gentleman who was in the party with the L. girls, and that is all. 3. F. A small town some sixteen or seventeen miles from R., had for its Methodist minister, in July of last year, a man who has since died, Samuel Stebbins by name, date of decease, Jan 7th of this year. 4. Name of man in employ of SS at that time is Timothy Cook. He has been absent, but returned to P two days ago. Can be seen if required. Aha! I cried aloud at this point, in my sudden surprise and satisfaction. Now we have something to work upon and sitting down I penned the following reply. T.C. wanted by all means. Also any evidence going to prove that H.C. and E.L. were married at the house of Mr. S. on any day of July or August last. 
Next morning came the following telegram. T.C. on the road. Remembers a marriage. Will be with you by 2 p.m. At three o'clock that same day, I stood before Mr. Grice. I'm here to make my report, I announced. The nicker of a smile passed over his face, and he gazed, for the first time, at his bound-up finger-ends, with a softening aspect which must have done them good. "'I'm ready,' said he. "'Mr. Grice,' I began, "'do you remember the conclusion we came to at our first interview in this house?' "'I remember the one you came to.' "'Well, well,' I acknowledged a little peevishly, "'the one I came to, then, it was this.' that if we should find to whom Eleanor Leavenworth felt she owed her best duty and love, we should discover the man who murdered her uncle. "'And do you imagine you have done this?' "'I do.' His eyes stole a little nearer my face. "'Well, that is good. Go on.' "'When I undertook this business of clearing Eleanor Leavenworth from suspicion,' I resumed, it was with the premonition that this person would prove to be her lover, but I had no idea he would prove to be her husband. Mr. Grice's gaze flashed like lightning to the ceiling. "'What?' he ejaculated with a frown. "'The lover of Eleanor Leavenworth is likewise her husband,' I repeated. "'Mr. Clavering holds no lesser connection to her than that.' "'How have you found that out?' demanded Mr. Grice in a harsh tone that argued disappointment or displeasure. "'That I will not take time to state. The question is not how I became acquainted with a certain thing, but is what I assert in regard to it true. If you will cast your eye over this summary of events, gleaned by me from the lives of these two persons, I think you will agree with me that it is.' And I held up before his eyes the following. During the two weeks commencing July 6th of the year 1875 and ending July 19th of the same year, Henry R. Clavering of London and Eleanor Leavenworth of New York were guests of the same hotel. Fact proved by the visitor book of the Hotel Union at R. New York. They were not only guests of the same hotel, but are known to have held more or less communication with each other. Fact proved by such servants now employed in R as were in the hotel at that time. July 19th. Mr. Clavering left R abruptly, a circumstance that would not be considered remarkable if Mr. Leavenworth, whose violent antipathy to Englishmen as husbands is publicly known, had not just returned from a journey. July 30th. Mr. Clavering was seen in the parlour of Mr. Stebbins, the Methodist minister at F, a town about sixteen miles from R, where he was married to a lady of great beauty, proved by Timothy Cook, a man in the employ of Mr. Stebbins, who was called in from the garden to witness the ceremony and sign a paper supposed to be a certificate. July 31st. Mr. Clavering takes steamer for Liverpool, proved by newspapers of that date. September. Eleanor Leavenworth in her uncle's house in New York, conducting herself as usual but pale of face and preoccupied in manner proved by servants then in her service. Mr. Clavering, in London, watches the United States mails with eagerness, but receives no letters, fits up room elegantly as for a lady, proved by secret communication from London. November. 
Miss Leavenworth still in uncle's house. No publication of her marriage ever made. Mr. Clavering in London. Shows signs of uneasiness. The room prepared for lady closed. Proved as above. January 17th, 1876. Mr. Clavering, having returned to America, engages room at Hoffman House, New York. March 1st or 2nd. Mr. Leavenworth receives a letter signed by Henry Clavering, in which he complains of being ill-used by one of that gentleman's nieces. A manifest shade falls over the family at this time. March 4th. Mr. Clavering, under a false name, inquires at the door of Mr. Leavenworth's house for Miss Eleanor Leavenworth, proved by Thomas. "'March 4th!' exclaimed Mr. Grice at this point. "'That was the night of the murder.' "'Yes. The Mr. Leroy Robbins, said to have called that evening, was none other than Mr. Clavering.' March 19th. Miss Mary Leavenworth, in a conversation with me, acknowledges that there is a secret in the family, and is just upon the point of revealing its nature when Mr. Clavering enters the house. Upon his departure she declares her unwillingness ever to mention the subject again. Mr. Grice slowly waved the paper aside. "'And from these facts you draw the inference that Eleanor Leavenworth is the wife of Mr. Clavering?' I do. And that being his wife, it would be natural for her to conceal anything she knew likely to criminate him, always supposing Clavering himself had done anything criminal, of course, which latter supposition you now proposed to justify, which latter supposition is left for us to justify. A peculiar gleam shot over Mr. Grice's somewhat abstracted countenance. "'Then you have no new evidence against Mr. Clavering?' "'I should think the fact just given, of his standing in the relation of unacknowledged husband to the suspected party, was something.' "'No positive evidence as to his being the assassin of Mr. Leavenworth, I mean.' I was obliged to admit I had none which he would consider positive. But I can show the existence of motive, and I can likewise show it was not only possible but probable he was in the house at the time of the murder. "'Ah, you can!' cried Mr. Grice, rousing a little from his abstraction. The motive was the usual one of self-interest. Mr. Leavenworth stood in the way of Eleanor's acknowledging him as a husband, and he must therefore be put out of the way. Weak. Motives for murders are sometimes weak. The motive for this was not. Too much calculation was shown for the arm to have been nerved by anything short of the most deliberate intention, founded upon the deadliest necessity of passion or avarice. Avarice? one should never deliberate upon the causes which have led to the destruction of a rich man without taking into account that most common passion of the human race but let us hear what you have to say of mr clavering's presence in the house at the time of the murder i related what thomas the butler had told me in regard to mr clavering's call upon miss leavenworth that night and the lack of proof which existed as to his having left the house when supposed to do so. "'That is worth remembering,' 
said Mr. Grice at the conclusion, valueless as direct evidence it might prove of great value as corroborative. Then, in a graver tone, he went on to say, Mr. Raymond, are you aware that in all this you have been strengthening the case against Eleanor Leavenworth instead of weakening it? I could only ejaculate in my sudden wonder and dismay. You have shown her to be secret, sly, and unprincipled, capable of wronging those to whom she was most bound, her uncle and her husband. You put it very strongly, said I, conscious of a shocking discrepancy between this description of Eleanor's character and all that I had preconceived in regard to it no more so than your own conclusions from this story warrant me in doing then as i sat silent murmured low and as if to himself if the case was dark against her before it is doubly so with this supposition established of her being the woman secretly married to mr clavering and yet i protested unable to give up my hope without a struggle you do not, cannot believe the noble-looking Eleanor guilty of this horrible crime? No, he slowly said. You might as well know right here what I think about her. I believe Eleanor Leavenworth to be an innocent woman. You do? Then what? I cried, swaying between joy at this admission and doubt as to the meaning of his former expressions. Remains to be done. Mr. Grice quietly responded, "'Why, nothing but to prove your supposition a false one.'" End of chapter 24 Chapter 25 of The Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. CHAPTER Twenty Five, TIMOTHY COOK Look here upon this picture, and on this. Hamlet I stared at him in amazement. "'I doubt if it will be so very difficult,' said he. Then, in a sudden burst, "'Where is the man Cook?' "'He is below with Q. "'That was a wise move. "'Let us see the boys.' have them up stepping to the door i called them i expected of course you would want to question them said i coming back in another moment the spruce q and the shock-headed cook entered the room ah said mr grice directing his attention at the latter in his own whimsical non-committal way this is the deceased mr stebbins hired man is it well you look as though you could tell the truth i usually calculate to do that thing sir at all events i was never called a liar as i can remember of course not of course not returned the affable detective then without any further introduction what was the first name of the lady you saw married in your master's house last summer bless me if i know i don't think i heard sir but you recollect how she looked as well as if she were my own mother no disrespect to the lady sir if you know her he made haste to add glancing hurriedly at me 
what i mean is she was so handsome i could never forget the look of her sweet face if i lived a hundred years can you describe her i don't know sirs she was tall and grand-looking had the brightest eyes and the whitest hand and smiled in a way to make even a common man like me wish he had never seen her would you know her in a crowd i would know her anywhere very well now tell us all you can about that marriage well sirs it was something like this i had been in mr stebbins employ about a year when one morning as i was hoeing the garden i saw a gentleman walk rapidly up the road to our gate and come in i noticed him particularly because he was so fine-looking unlike anybody in f and indeed unlike anybody i had ever seen for that matter but i shouldn't have thought much about that if there hadn't come along not five minutes after a buggy with two ladies in it which stopped at our gate too i saw they wanted to get out so i went and held their horse for them and they got down and went into the house did you see their faces no sir not then they had veils on very well go on i hadn't been to work long before i heard someone calling my name and looking up saw mr stebbins standing in the doorway beckoning i went to him and he said i want you tim wash your hands and come into the parlour i'd never been asked to do that before and it struck me all of a heap but i did what he asked and was so taken aback at the looks of the lady i saw standing on the floor with the handsome gentleman that i stumbled over a stool and made a great racket and didn't know much where i was or what was going on till i heard mr stebbins say man and wife and then it came over me in a hot kind of way that it was a marriage i was seeing timothy cook stopped to wipe his forehead as if overcome with the very recollection and mr gryce took the opportunity to remark you say there were two ladies now where was the other one at this time she was there sir but i didn't mind much about her i was so taken up with the handsome one and the way she had a smiling when any one looked at her i never saw the beat i felt a quick thrill go through me can you remember the colour of her hair or eyes no sir i had a feeling as if she wasn't dark and that is all i know but you remember her face yes sir mr gryce here whispered to me to procure two pictures which i would find in a certain drawer in his desk and set them up in different parts of the room unbeknown to the man you have before said pursued mr gryce that you have no remembrance of her name now how was that weren't you called upon to sign the certificate yes sir but i am most ashamed to say it i was in a sort of maze and didn't hear much and only remember it was a mr clavering she was married to and that some one called some one else elner or something like that i wish i hadn't been so stupid sir if it would have done you any good tell us about the signing of the certificate said mr gryce well sir there isn't much to tell mr stebbins asked me to put my name down in a certain place on a piece of paper he pushed towards me and i put it down there that is all was there no other name there when you wrote yours no sir 
Afterwards Mr. Stebbins turned towards the other lady, who, who now came forward and asked her if she wouldn't please sign it too, and she said yes, and came very quickly and did so. "'And you didn't see her face then?' "'No, sir. Her back was to me when she threw by her veil, and I only saw Mr. Stebbins staring at her as she stooped, with a kind of wonder on his face, which made me think she might have been something worth looking at too, but I didn't see her myself.' "'Well, what happened then?' "'I don't know, sir. I went stumbling out of the room. I didn't see anything more.' "'Where were you when the ladies went away?' "'In the garden, sir. I'd gone back to my work.' "'You saw them, then. Was the gentleman with them?' "'No, sir. That was the queer part of it all. They went back as they came, and so did he.' and in a few minutes mr stebbins came out where i was and told me i was to say nothing about what i had seen for it was a secret were you the only one in the house who knew anything about it weren't there any women around no sir miss stebbins had gone to the sewing circle i had by this time some faint impression of what mr grice's suspicions were and in arranging the pictures had placed one, that of Eleanor on the mantelpiece, and the other, which was an uncommonly fine photograph of Mary, in plain view on the desk. But Mr. Cook's back was as yet towards that part of the room, and, taking advantage of the moment, I returned and asked him if that was all he had to tell us about this matter. "'Yes, sir.' "'Then,' said Mr. Grice, with a glance at Q, "'Isn't there something you can give Mr. Cook in payment for his story? Look around, will you?' Q nodded, and moved towards a cupboard in the wall at the side of the mantelpiece. Mr. Cook followed him with his eyes, as was natural, when with a sudden start he crossed the room, and, pausing before the mantelpiece, looked at the picture of Eleanor which I had put there, gave a low grunt of satisfaction or pleasure, looked at it again, and walked away. I felt my heart leap into my throat, and moved by what impulse of dread or hope I cannot say, turned my back, when suddenly I heard him give vent to a startled exclamation, followed by the words, "'Why, here she is! This is her, sirs!' and turning around saw him hurrying towards us, with Mary's picture in his hands. I do not know, as I was greatly surprised. I was powerfully excited as well as conscious of a certain whirl of thought, and an unsettling of old conclusions that was very confusing, but surprised. No, Mr. Grice's manner had too well prepared me. "'This the lady who was married to Mr. Clavering, my good man? I guess you are mistaken,' cried the detective, in a very incredulous tone. "'Mistaken? Didn't I say I would know her anywhere? This is the lady!' if she's the President's wife herself!" And Mr. Cook leaned over it with a devouring look that was not without its element of homage. "'I am very much astonished,' Mr. Grice went on, winking at me in a slow diabolical way which in another mood would have aroused my fiercest anger. "'Now, if you had said the other lady was the one,' pointing to the picture on the mantelpiece, "'I shouldn't have wondered.' she i never saw that lady before but this one would you mind telling me her name sirs if what you say is true her name is mrs clavering clavering yes that was his name 
and a very lovely lady said mr gryce morris haven't you found anything yet q for answer brought forward glasses and a bottle but mr cook was in no mood for liquor i think he was struck with remorse for looking from the picture to q and from q to the picture he said if i have done this lady wrong by my talk i'll never forgive myself you told me i would help her to get her rights if you have deceived me oh i haven't deceived you broke in q in his short sharp way ask that gentleman there if we are not all interested in mrs clavering getting her due he had designated me but i was in no mood to reply i longed to have the man dismissed that i might inquire the reason of the great complacency which i now saw overspreading mr gryce's frame to his very finger-ends mr cook needn't be concerned remarked mr gryce if he will take a glass of warm drink to fortify him for his walk i think he may go to the lodgings mr morris has provided for him without fear give the gent a glass and let him mix for himself but it was a full ten minutes before we were delivered of the man and his vain regrets mary's image had called up every latent feeling in his heart and i could but wonder over a loveliness capable of swaying the low as well as the high but at last he yielded to the seductions of the now wily q and departed left alone with mr gryce i must have allowed some of the confused emotions which filled my breast to become apparent on my countenance for after a few minutes of ominous silence he exclaimed very grimly and yet with a latent touch of that complacency i had before noticed this discovery rather upsets you doesn't it well it don't me shutting his mouth like a trap i expected it your conclusions must differ very materially from mine i returned or you would see that this discovery alters the complexion of the whole affair it does not alter the truth what is the truth mr gryce's very legs grew thoughtful his voice sank to its deepest tone do you very much want to know want to know the truth what else are we after then said he to my notion the complexion of things has altered but very much for the better as long as eleanor was believed to be the wife her action in this matter was accounted for but the tragedy itself was not why should eleanor or eleanor's husband wish the death of a man whose bounty they believed would end with his life but with mary the heiress proved the wife i tell you mr raymond it all hangs together now you must never in reckoning up an affair of murder like this forget who it is that most profits by the deceased man's death but eleanor's silence her concealment of certain proofs and evidences in her own breast how will you account for that i can imagine a woman devoting herself to the shielding of a husband from the consequences of crime but a cousin's husband never mr gryce put his feet very close together and softly grunted then you still think mr clavering the assassin of mr leavenworth i could only stare at him in my sudden doubt and dread still think i repeated mr clavering the murderer of mr leavenworth 
"'Why, what else is there to think? "'You don't—you can't suspect Eleanor "'of having deliberately undertaken to help her cousin "'out of a difficulty by taking the life of their mutual benefactor?' "'No,' said Mr. Grice. "'No, I do not think Eleanor Leavenworth had any hand in the business.' "'Then who—' I began and stopped, "'lost in the dark vista that was opening before me. "'Who?' why who but the one whose past deceit and present necessity demanded his death as a relief who but the beautiful money-loving man-deceiving goddess i leapt to my feet in my sudden horror and repugnance do not mention the name you are wrong but do not speak the name excuse me said he but it will have to be spoken many times, and we may as well begin here and now. Who then but Mary Leavenworth, or, if you like it better, Mrs. Henry Clavering? Are you so much surprised? It has been my thought from the beginning. End of chapter 25 Chapter Twenty Six of the Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Six Mr. Grice Explains Himself. Sits the wind in that corner? Much ado about nothing. I do not propose to enter into a description of the mingled feelings aroused in me by this announcement as a drowning man is said to live over in one terrible instant the events of a lifetime so each word uttered in my hearing by mary from her first introduction to me in her own room on the morning of the inquest to our final conversation on the night of mr clavering's call swept in one wild phantasmagoria through my brain leaving me aghast at the signification which her whole conduct seemed to acquire from the lurid light which now fell upon it i perceive that i have pulled down an avalanche of doubts about your ears exclaimed my companion from the height of his calm superiority you never thought of this possibility then yourself do not ask me what i have thought i only know i will never believe your suspicions true that however much mary may have been benefited by her uncle's death she never had a hand in it actual hand i mean and what makes you so sure of this and what makes you so sure of the contrary it is for you to prove not for me to prove her innocence ah said mr grice in his slow sarcastic way you recollect that principle of law do you if i remember rightly you have not always been so punctilious in regarding it or wishing to have it regarded when the question was whether mr clavering was the assassin or not but he is a man it does not seem so dreadful to accuse a man of a crime but a woman and such a woman i cannot listen to this it is horrible nothing short of absolute confession on her part will ever make me believe mary leavenworth or any other woman committed this deed it was too cruel too deliberate to read the criminal records broke in mr grice 
but I was obstinate. I do not care for the criminal records. All the criminal records in the world would never make me believe Eleanor perpetrated this crime, nor will I be less generous towards her cousin. Mary Leavenworth is a faulty woman, but not a guilty one. You are more lenient in your judgment of her than her cousin was, it appears. I do not understand you, I muttered, feeling a new and yet more fearful light breaking upon me. What? Have you forgotten, in the hurry of these late events, the sentence of accusation which we overheard uttered between these ladies on the morning of the inquest? No, but you believed it to have been spoken by Mary to Eleanor? Of course, didn't you? Oh, the smile which crossed Mr. Grice's face! Scarcely! I left that baby play for you. I thought one was enough to follow on that tack. The light, the light that was breaking upon me. And do you mean to say it was Eleanor who was speaking at that time? That I have been labouring all these weeks under a terrible mistake, and that you could have righted me with a word and did not? Well, as to that... I had a purpose in letting you follow your own lead for a while. In the first place I was not sure myself which spoke, though I had but little doubt about the matter. The voices are, as you must have noticed, very much alike, while the attitudes in which we found them upon entering were such as to be explainable equally by the supposition that Mary was in the act of launching a denunciation or in that of repelling one, so that, while I did not hesitate myself as to the true explanation of the scene before me, I was pleased to find you accept a contrary one, as in this way both theories had a chance of being tested, as was right in a case of so much mystery. You, accordingly, took up the affair with one idea for your starting-point, and I with another. You saw every fact as it developed, through the medium of Mary's belief in Eleanor's guilt, and I through the opposite. And what has been the result? With you, doubt, contradiction, constant unsettlement, and unwarranted resorts to strange sources for reconcilement between appearances and your own convictions. With me, growing assurance and a belief which each and every development so far has but served to strengthen and make more probable. Again that wild panorama of events, looks and words, swept before me. Mary's reiterated assertions of her cousin's innocence, Eleanor's attitude of lofty silence in regard to certain matters which might be considered by her as pointing towards the murderer. "'Your theory must be the correct one,' I finally admitted. "'It was undoubtedly Eleanor who spoke. She believes in Mary's guilt, and I have been blind, indeed, not to have seen it from the first. "'If Eleanor Leavenworth believes in her cousin's criminality, she must have some good reasons for doing so. I was obliged to admit that, too. She did not conceal in her bosom that tell-tale key, found who knows where, and destroy, or seek to destroy it, and the letter which introduced her cousin to the public, 
as the unprincipled destroyer of a trusting man's peace for nothing. No, no. And yet you, a stranger, a young man who have never seen Mary Leavenworth in any other light than that in which her coquettish nature sought to display itself, presume to say she is innocent, in the face of the attitude maintained from the first by her cousin. But, said I, in my great unwillingness to accept his conclusions, Eleanor Leavenworth is but mortal. She may have been mistaken in her inferences. She has never stated what her suspicion was founded upon, nor can we know what basis she has for maintaining the attitude you speak of. Clavering is as likely as Mary to be the assassin, for all we know, and possibly for all she knows. You seem to be almost superstitious in your belief in Clavering's guilt. I recoiled. Was I? Could it be that Mr. Harwell's fanciful conviction in regard to this man had in any way influenced me to the detriment of my better judgment? And you may be right, Mr. Grice went on. I do not pretend to be set in my notions. Future investigation may succeed in fixing something upon him, though I hardly think it likely. His behaviour as the secret husband of a woman, possessing motives for the commission of a crime, has been too consistent throughout. All except his leaving her. No exception at all, for he hasn't left her. What do you mean? I mean that, instead of leaving the country, Mr. Clavering has only made a pretence of doing so. That in place of dragging himself off to Europe at her command, he has only changed his lodgings, and can now be found not only in a house opposite to hers, but in the window of that house, where he sits day after day watching who goes in and out of her front door. I remembered his parting injunction to me, in that memorable interview we had in my office, and saw myself compelled to put a new construction upon it. But I was assured at Hoffman House that he had sailed for Europe, and myself saw the man who professes to have driven him to the steamer. Just so. And Mr. Clavering returned to the city after that, in another carriage, and to another house. "'And you tell me that man is all right?' "'No. I only say there isn't the shadow of evidence against him as the person who shot Mr. Leavenworth.' Rising, I paced the floor, and for a few minutes silence fell between us. But the clock, striking, recalled me to the necessity of the hour, and turning I asked Mr. Grice what he proposed to do now. "'There is but one thing I can do,' said he and that is, to go upon such lights as I have, and cause the arrest of Miss Leavenworth. I had by this time schooled myself to endurance, and was able to hear this without uttering an exclamation, but I could not let it pass without making one effort to combat his determination. But, said I, I do not see what evidence you have positive enough in its character to warrant extreme measures. You have yourself intimated that the existence of motive is not enough, even though taken with the fact of the suspected party being in the house at the time of the murder. And what more have you to urge against, Miss Leavenworth? Pardon me. 
I said Miss Leavenworth. I should have said Eleanor Leavenworth. Eleanor? What? When you and all unite in thinking that she alone of all these parties to the crime is utterly guiltless of wrong? And yet who is the only one against whom a positive testimony of any kind can be brought? I could but acknowledge that. Mr. Raymond, he remarked very gravely, the public is becoming clamorous. Something must be done to satisfy it, if only for the moment. Eleanor has laid herself open to the suspicion of the police, and must take the consequences of her action. I am sorry. She is a noble creature. I admire her. But justice is justice, and though I think her innocent, I shall be forced to put her under arrest, unless—but I cannot be reconciled to it. It is doing an irretrievable injury to one whose only fault is an undue and mistaken devotion to an unworthy cousin. If Mary is the—unless something occurs between now and to-morrow morning, Mr. Grice went on, as if I had not spoken. To-morrow morning? yes i tried to realize it tried to face the fact that all my efforts had been for nothing and failed will you not grant me one more day i asked in my desperation what to do alas i did not know to confront mr clavering and force from him the truth to make a mess of the whole affair he growled no sir the die is cast Eleanor Leavenworth knows the one point which fixes this crime upon her cousin, and she must tell us that point, or suffer the consequences of her refusal. I made one more effort. But why to-morrow? Having exhausted so much time already in our inquiries, why not take a little more, especially as the trail is constantly growing warmer? A little more mowling. A little more folderol? exclaimed Mr. Grice, losing his temper. No, sir, the hour for moling has passed. Something decisive has got to be done now. Though, to be sure, if I could find the one missing link I want— Missing link? What is that? The immediate motive of the tragedy. A bit of proof that Mr. Leavenworth threatened his niece with his displeasure, or Mr. Clavering with his revenge, would place me on the vantage-point at once. No arresting of Eleanor then. No, my lady, I would walk right into your own gilded parlours, and when you ask me if I had found the murderer yet, say yes, and show you a bit of paper which would surprise you. But missing links are not so easily found. This has been moulded for, and moulded for, as you are pleased to call our system of investigation, and totally without result. Nothing but the confession of some one of these several parties to the crime will give us what we want. I will tell you what I will do, he suddenly cried. Miss Leavenworth has desired me to report to her. She is very anxious for the detection of the murderer, you know, and offers an immense reward. Well, I will gratify this desire of hers. The suspicions I have, together with my reasons for them, will make an interesting disclosure. I should not greatly wonder if they produced an equally interesting confession." I could only jump to my feet in horror. 
At all events, I propose to try it. Eleanor is worth that much risk anyway. It will do no good, said I. If Mary is guilty, she will never confess it. If not, she will tell us who is. Not if it is Clavering, her husband. Yes, even if it is Clavering, her husband. She has not the devotion of Eleanor. That I could but acknowledge. She would hide no keys for the sake of shielding another. No, if Mary were accused, she would speak. The future opening before us looked sombre enough. And yet, when, in a short time from that, I found myself alone in a busy street, the thought that Eleanor was free rose above all others, filling and moving me till my walk home in the rain that day has become a marked memory of my life. It was only with nightfall that I began to realise the truly critical position in which Mary stood if Mr. Grice's theory was correct. But once seized with this thought, nothing could drive it from my mind. Shrink as I would, it was ever before me, haunting me with the direst forebodings. Nor, though I retired early, could I succeed in getting either sleep or rest. All night I tossed on my pillow, saying over to myself with dreary iteration, "'Something must happen, something will happen, to prevent Mr. Grice doing this dreadful thing.' Then I would start up and ask what could happen, and my mind would run over various contingencies, such as Mr. Clavering might confess, Hannah might come back, Mary herself wake up to her position and speak the word I had more than once seen trembling on her lips. But further thought showed me how unlikely any of these things were to happen, and it was with a brain utterly exhausted that I fell asleep in the early dawn. To dream I saw Mary standing above Mr. Grice with a pistol in her hand. I was awakened from this pleasing vision by a heavy knock at the door. Hastily rising, I asked who was there. The answer came in the shape of an envelope thrust under the door. Raising it, I found it to be a note. It was from Mr. Grice, and ran thus. "'Come at once. Hannah Chester is found.' "'Hannah found?' "'So we have reason to think.' "'When? Where? By whom?' "'Sit down, and I will tell you.' Drawing up a chair in a flurry of hope and fear, I sat down by Mr. Grice's side. "'She is not in the cupboard,' that person dryly assured me, noting without doubt how my eyes went travelling about the room in my anxiety and impatience. "'We are not absolutely sure that she is anywhere, but word has come to us that a girl's face believed to be Hannah's has been seen at the upper window of a certain house in—don't start—R where a year ago she was in the habit of visiting, while at the hotel with the Mrs. Leavenworth. Now, as it has already been determined that she left New York the night of the murder by the railroad, though for what point we have been unable to ascertain, we consider the matter worth inquiring into. But if she is there, resumed Mr. Grice, she is secreted kept very close. No one except the informant has ever seen her, nor is there any suspicion among the neighbours of her being in town. Hannah secreted at a certain house in R. Whose house? Mr. Grice honoured me with one of his grimmest smiles. The name of the lady she was with is given in the communication as Belden, Mrs. 
Amy Belden. Amy Belden, the name found written on a torn envelope by Mr. Clavering's servant girl in London. Yes. I made no attempt to conceal my satisfaction. Then we are upon the verge of some discovery. Providence has interfered, and Eleanor will be saved. But when did you get this word? Last night. Or rather, this morning. Q bought it. It was a message, then, to Q? Yes. The result of his molings, while in R, I suppose. Whom was it signed by? A respectable tinsmith who lives next door to Mrs. B. And this is the first you knew of an Amy Belden living in R? Yes. Widow or wife? Don't know. Don't know anything about her but her name. But you have already sent Q to make inquiries? No. The affair is a little too serious for him to manage alone. He is not equal to great occasions, and might fail just for the lack of a keen mind to direct him. In short, I wish you to go. Since I cannot be there myself, I know of no one else sufficiently up in the affair to conduct it to a successful issue. You see, it is not enough to find and identify the girl. The present condition of things demands that the arrest of so important a witness should be kept secret. Now, for a man to walk into a strange house in a distant village, find a girl who is secreted there, frighten her, cajole her, force her, as the case may be, from her hiding-place to a detective's office in New York, and all without the knowledge of the next-door neighbour, if possible, requires judgment, brains, genius. Then the woman who conceals her, she must have her reasons for doing so, and they must be known. Altogether, the affair is a delicate one. Do you think you can manage it? I should like at least to try. Mr. Grice settled himself on the sofa. To think what pleasure I am losing on your account, he grumbled, gazing reproachfully at his helpless limbs. But to business. How soon can you start? Immediately. Good. A train leaves the depot at twelve-fifteen. Take that. Once in R, it will be for you to decide upon the means of making Mrs. Belden's acquaintance without arousing her suspicions. Q, who will follow you, will hold himself in readiness to render you any assistance you may require. Only this thing is to be understood. As he will doubtless go in disguise, you are not to recognise him much less interfere with him and his plans, till he gives you leave to do so, by some preconcerted signal. You are to work in your way, and he in his, till circumstances seem to call for mutual support and countenance. I cannot even say whether you will see him or not. He may find it necessary to keep out of the way, but you may be sure of one thing, that he will know where you are and that the display of, well, let us say, a red silk handkerchief, have you such a thing? I will get one. Will be regarded by him as a sign that you desire his presence or assistance, whether it be shown about your person or at the window of your room. 
"'and these are all the instructions you can give me?' "'I said as he paused. "'Yes. I don't know of anything else. "'You must depend largely upon your own discretion "'and the exigencies of the moment. "'I cannot tell you now what to do. "'Your own wit will be the best guide. "'Only, if possible, let me either hear from you "'or see you by to-morrow at this time.' and he handed me a cipher in case I should wish to telegraph. End of chapter 26 Chapter 27 of The Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 3. Hannah Chapter 27 Amy Belden. A merrier man within the limits of becoming mirth, I never spent an hour's talk withal. Love's labours lost. I had a client in R by the name of Monell, and it was from him I had planned to learn the best way of approaching Mrs. Belden. When, therefore, I was so fortunate as to meet him almost on my arrival, driving on the long road behind his famous trotter Alfred, I regarded the encounter as a most auspicious beginning of a very doubtful enterprise. "'Well, and how goes the day?' was his exclamation, as the first greetings passed we drove rapidly into town. "'Your part in it goes pretty smoothly,' I returned, and, thinking I could never hope to win his attention to my own affairs till I had satisfied him in regard to his, I told him all I could concerning the lawsuit then pending, a subject so prolific of question and answer, that we had driven twice round the town before he remembered he had a letter to post. As it was an important one, admitting of no delay, we hastened at once to the post-office, where he went in, leaving me outside to watch the rather meagre stream of goers and comers, who at that time of day make the post-office of a country town their place of rendezvous. Among these, for some reason, I especially noted one middle-aged woman. Why, I cannot say. Her appearance was anything but remarkable. And yet, when she came out with two letters in her hand, one in a large and one in a small envelope, and, meeting my eye, hastily drew them under her shawl, I found myself wondering what was in her letters, and who she could be, that the casual glance of a stranger should unconsciously move her to an action so suspicious but Mr. Monell's reappearance at the same moment diverted my attention, and in the interest of the conversation that followed I soon forgot both the woman and her letters. For determined that he should have no opportunity to revert to that endless topic, a law-case, I exclaimed with the first crack of the whip, "'There! I knew there was something I wanted to ask you. It is this. Are you acquainted with anyone in this town by the name of Belden?' "'There is a widow Belden in this town. I don't know of any other.' "'Is her first name Amy?' "'Yes, Mrs. Amy Belden.' Ah, "'That is the one,' said I. "'Who is she? What is she? And what is the extent of your acquaintance with her?' "'Well,' said he, "'I cannot conceive why you should be interested in such an antiquated piece of commonplace goodness as she is. But seeing you ask, I have no objection to telling you.' that she is the very respectable relict of a deceased cabinet-maker of this town, that she lives in a little house down the street there, 
and that if you have any forlorn old tramp to be lodged overnight, or any destitute family of little ones to be looked after, she is the one to go to. As to knowing her, I know her as I do a dozen other members of our church there up over the hill. When I see her, I speak to her, and that is all. A respectable widow, you say. Any family? No, she lives alone. Has a little income, I believe. Must have, to put the money on the plate she always does. But spends her time in plain sewing and such deeds of charity as one with small means but willing heart can find the opportunity of doing in a town like this. But why in the name of wonders do you ask? A business, said I. A business. Mrs. Belden, don't mention it, by the way, has got mixed up in a case of mine, and I felt it due to my curiosity, if not to my purse, to find out something about her. And I am not satisfied yet. The fact is I would give something, Manel, for the opportunity of studying this woman's character. Now, couldn't you manage to get me introduced into her house in some way that would make it possible and proper for me to converse with her at my leisure? Business would thank you if you could. Well, I don't know. I suppose it could be done. She used to take lodgers in the summer when the hotel was full, and might be induced to give a bed to a friend of mine who is very anxious to be near the post-office on account of a business telegram he is expecting, and which, when it comes, will demand his immediate attention. And Mr. Monell gave me a sly wink of his eye, little imagining how near the mark he had struck. You need not say that. Tell her I have a peculiar dislike to sleeping in a public house, and that you know of no one better fitted to accommodate me, for the short time I desire to be in town, than herself. And what will be said of my hospitality in allowing you under these circumstances to remain in any other house than my own? I don't know. Very hard things, no doubt. But I guess your hospitality can stand it. "'Well, if you persist, we will see what can be done.' And driving up to a neat white cottage of homely but sufficiently attractive appearance, he stopped. "'This is her house,' said he, jumping to the ground. "'Let's go in and see what we can do.' Glancing up at the windows, which were all closed, save the two on the veranda overlooking the street, I thought to myself, "'If she has anybody in hiding here, whose presence in the house she desires to keep secret, it is folly to hope she will take me in, however well recommended I may come. But yielding to the example of my friend, I alighted in my turn, and followed him up the short, grass-bordered walk to the front door. "'As she has no servant, she will come to the door herself, so be ready,' he remarked as he knocked. I had barely time to observe that the curtains to the window at my left suddenly dropped when a hasty step made itself heard within, and a quick hand drew open the door, and I saw before me the woman whom I had observed at the post-office, and whose action with the letters had struck me as peculiar. I recognised her at first glance, though she was differently dressed, and had evidently passed through some worry or excitement that had altered the expression of her countenance, and made her manner, what it was not at that time, strained and a trifle uncertain. But I saw no reason for thinking she remembered me. On the contrary, the look she directed towards me had nothing but inquiry in it, and when Mr. Monell pushed me forward with the remark, "'A friend of mine, in fact, my lawyer from New York,' she dropped a hurried old-fashioned curtsy, 
whose only expression was a manifest desire to appear sensible of the honour conferred upon her, through the mist of a certain trouble that confused everything about her. "'We have come to ask a favour, Mrs. Belden. But may we not come in?' said my client, in a round, hearty voice, well calculated to recall a person's thoughts into their proper channel. "'I have heard many times of your cosy home, and am glad of this opportunity of seeing it.' and with a blind disregard to the look of surprised resistance with which she met his advance, he stepped gallantly into the little room, whose cheery red carpet and bright picture-hung walls showed invitingly through the half-open door at our left. Finding her premises thus invaded by a sort of French coup d'etat, Mrs. Belden made the best of the situation, and, pressing me to enter also, devoted herself to hospitality. As for Mr. Monell, he quite blossomed out in his endeavours to make himself agreeable, so much so that I shortly found myself laughing at his sallies, though my heart was full of anxiety lest, after all, our efforts should fail of the success they certainly merited. Meanwhile Mrs. Belden softened more and more, joining in the conversation with an ease hardly to be expected from one in her humble circumstances. Indeed, I soon saw she was no common woman there was a refinement in her speech and manner, which, combined with her motherly presence and gentle air, was very pleasing, the last woman in the world to suspect of any underhanded proceeding, if she had not shown a peculiar hesitation when Mr. Monell broached the subject of my entertainment there. "'I don't know, sir. I would be glad, but—' and she turned a very scrutinising look upon me. "'The fact is, I have not taken lodges of late.' and I have got out of the way of the whole thing, and I'm afraid I cannot make him comfortable. In short, you will have to excuse me." Oh, "'But we can't,' returned Mr. Monell. "'What, entice a fellow into a room like this?' And he cast a hearty, admiring glance around the apartment, which, for all its simplicity, both its warm colouring and general air of cosiness amply merited, and then turn a cold shoulder upon him when he humbly entreats the honour of staying a single night in the enjoyment of its attractions? No, no, Mrs. Belden, I know you too well for that. Lazarus himself couldn't come to your door and be turned away, much less a good-hearted, clever-headed young gentleman like my friend here." "'You're very good,' she began, an almost weak love of praise showing itself for a moment in her eyes. "'But I have no room prepared. I have been house-cleaning, and everything is topsy-turvy, Mrs. Wright now over the way. "'My young friend is going to stop here,' Mr. Monell broke in with frank positiveness. "'If I cannot have him at my own house, and for certain reasons it is not advisable, I shall at least have the satisfaction of knowing he is in the charge of the best housekeeper in R.' Uh, "'Yes,' I put in, but without too great a show of interest. "'I should be sorry, once introduced here, to be obliged to go elsewhere.' The troubled eye wavered away from us to the door. "'I was never called inhospitable,' she commenced. "'But everything is in such disorder. What time would you like to come?' "'I was in hopes I might remain now,' I replied. "'I have some letters to write, and ask nothing better than for leave to sit here and write them.' At the word letters I saw her hand go to her pocket in a movement which must have been involuntary for her countenance did not change, and she made the quick reply, "'Well, you may. If you can put up with such poor accommodations as I can offer, 
it shall not be said i refused you what mr monell is pleased to call a favour and complete in her reception as she had been in her resistance she gave us a pleasant smile and ignoring my thanks bustled out with mr monell to the buggy where she received my bag and what was doubtless more to her taste the compliments he was now more than ever ready to bestow upon her i'll see that a room is got ready for you in a very short space of time she said upon re-entering meanwhile make yourself at home here and if you wish to write why i think you will find everything for the purpose in these drawers and wheeling up a table to the easy chair in which i sat she pointed to the small compartments beneath with an air of such manifest desire to have me make use of anything and everything she had that i found myself wondering over my position with a sort of startled embarrassment that was not remote from shame thank you i have materials of my own said i and hastened to open my bag and bring out the writing-case which i always carried with me then i will leave you she said and with a quick bend and a short hurried look out of the window she hastily quitted the room i could hear her steps cross the hall go up two or three stairs pause go up the rest of the flight pause again and then pass on i was left on the first floor alone End of chapter 27